You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jessica Hagee is a cartoonist best known for Indexed, which is a series of cards adopted to a blog format. Indexed was her first book, followed by How to Be Interesting and the Humanist's Devotional. Her new book is a novel, One Morning, published by Tartarus Press from the UK, a wonderful press that only publishes great stuff. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me on. This is, uh, it was such a pleasure to read your novel and then go back and and read the indexed work. And I'd like to start with the indexed work because I think it demonstrates a kind of storytelling that is also revealed in one morning. I'd like you to just tell me what gave you the idea to start telling stories in cartoons in a kind of uh, like a business graphics format. So when I started the blog, it was 2006, and that was sort of the the height of blogness. And I'd been told that every writer needs a blog, but I didn't want to do one of those like, this is my breakfast, and this is what I'm doing today. And I wanted it to be sort of more universal than personal. So I started stealing office supplies and doodling on them, and I was getting my MBA in the evenings. And a lot of the work there centered on sort of graphic representation of real-world events. So I just started using that as sort of a grammar and went from there. And I never really thought anybody would find it, but now it's become basically my thing. You know, one of the things I really love about How to Be Interesting is that it encapsulates a genre that I would call an uncommon uncommon wisdom, which are things we, when we read them in, in the book, we think, we all think that we've heard that before, but it, it, is arranged and put for us in a way that reminds us of who we are and who we really want to be. This is a style, and especially this uh, How to Be Interesting, a book that finds our deepest and most positive inspirations and and makes them real to us. Could you talk about just telling that story and laying that book out? Because it's such a joy to read. Well, thank you. That entire idea really came from what is the most valuable adjective you could attach to a person these days? And it really was, if you're an interesting person, you're going to be interested in the world. And if you're interested in the world, you're going to be productive and happy and less engaged with the sort of navel-gazing anxiety that grips so many people now. And really playing with that idea and digging into it and seeing and putting it out in a format that people could grok quickly as opposed to a sort of academic deep dive into the concept of a feeling. So really putting it together felt like I was talking to my friends and I was telling them about all of the wonderful people I knew without naming names. Uh, I'm really glad you used the word grok, <clears throat> Out of Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, because that Im- the meaning of that word implies 
a certain kind of understanding and it's super applicable to how to be interesting it means like a deep and instant intuitive understanding of what you're being told and i think that is what you strive for and achieve in how to be interesting so talk about um, you have a variety of subjects, but talk about just your approach for each individual module that you have in here um, for how to how you as a writer and as a artist came up with the the uh, presentation that, that you gave us because mo you know writing is not some is actually a form of presentation, I guess that's really interesting. Yeah, I think when I'm going about my normal life, I take a lot of notes and I jot a lot of things down. And sometimes what I was thinking about and what I jot down sort of play a game of telephone with each other. So I'll, be, I'll be thinking about one thing and I'll say, oh, you know what? That idea applies to something else. And I think that interconnectivity of concepts really helped put that book together. Because if you have a little bit of this quality and a little bit of this quality, when you put them together, they're more than the two qualities themselves. So really kind of making how to be interesting an intersectional object was important too. So the book sort of flows together and at some points you're like, wait, are you talking about this or this? And then you realize, oh, you're talking about both of those things. You know, one of the most difficult um, aspects of writing a book, how to be interesting, is to make the book itself interesting and gripping and kind of, you know, a page turn, which it certainly is. Uh, you would think that a book about being interesting would, by virtue of the fact of its subject, be interesting, but that's not always the case. And so I think one of the things you do really well is to humanize it, and you made it, you talked earlier about making it seem like things you would tell a friend or things that you would say about somebody you admire who's a friend. So, so talk about bringing the reader into this kind of intimate relationship with you, like instantly with the, the combination of the prose and the drawings. Yeah, whenever you're doing any sort of book project or presentation, the audience has to be right there next to the keyboard or like right at your desk. And thinking about who I was talking to was key in all of this. And I'm lucky enough that I get to use the internet constantly and I get feedback from people so that I've built sort of an amalgamation in my head of the, all the people I'm talking to in one character. And I always tried to keep that character close when I was putting things out. And I decided basically as I started it, this person trusts me, I trust this person, and we both want the best for things. So there's nothing mean or negative coming through the book. It's all very encouraging. And yes, you can do this. And of course you can. And you're wonderful already. And let's go. You know, uh, as I said before, I think these are things um, that this book reminds me of something that your mother would tell you. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm really curious about that that aspect of it, that, that kind of uh, there's a, a caring feeling. We As we read this book and, and go through, through the modules, we really feel that you care about us. And so I'd like you to talk about how you... You know, I think that the the drawings play a really key part in this because it's something that you can, as you say, grok. Yeah, I think the, the caring aspect was in a lot of writing, especially business and commercial writing, the writer is just sort of taking on 
another voice and being a, sort of a ventriloquist for a brand or a company. And that is a really cold feeling sometimes. You're really trying to translate sometimes just not very good content into something that somebody's going to love. And so that kind of like weird manipulation, I could let that fall away when I was writing this book because I wasn't talking on behalf of a brand. I was talking on behalf of what I would want to hear or what I know that my audience needs to hear because so much communication is so stilted and emotionless and really being able to put emotion into a page that that feels really good to do. I think that uh, there's a, a certain kind of verb and energy to to the drawings you do the little diagram Venn diagrams so that that's a really interesting choice for for an artist because I I look at your logo here you have a just a wonderfully joyous and cute kind of logo that pops up uh, talk about choosing to use business diagrams to convey you know things that are really emotional and and, and moving yeah, the one thing that I've really developed as I've kept drawing these things is that there is a, a visual sort of a grammar. So any sentence you state can be redrawn in graphic format. And redrawing the sentence means that you can give it a different kind of eloquence. You can decide where the punchline goes. You can decide what word would best capture the feeling you're trying to get. And so I can translate ideas into graphs in a way that makes the sentence still clear, but also something that people see quickly and feel more instead of just read. You know, too, the, that what comes out of this style is a flow because you're actually in the drawings, you're taking us with the arrows from where we are to where we can be, where we want to be, where we should be. And uh, this carries you through the whole book. That's a a great way to create you know a feeling of tension and and momentum and and i think that the idea of tension is important because we want you to turn the page and find out more of your advice and most and this is a really unusual response to being given advice because most of the time when anybody um decides tells me i've got some advice for you rick i mean my brain just goes <laughs> It's like get smart with all the doors closing down the corridors. Yep. So how do you open up those doors? I think when I when I put things together, I don't want it to come across as a, as a sort of authoritative voice or a scolding voice or a I know better than you sort of a tone because, I mean, I get that enough in my normal life. And I know how grating it can be. So putting something out there that really is, I'm with you on this and I too feel this and seriously, this is hilariously weird, this world we live in, and let's look at it from a friendlier way. And yeah, always just keeping that character nearby helped me to keep it on track like that. Now, your, your latest book in this uh, style is The Humanist Devotional. This is a really fascinating book because it's filled with, I think, uh, the kind of uh, a spirituality that that we all are really longing for and, and are finding hard to 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 detect in the the current world so talk about creating a place for compassion for joy for love for for the 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 aspects of humanism that make it worth being calling yourself a humanist 
Yeah, I, uh, there are so many devotionals and ways that people put things together. And I think even a daily planner is a form of a devotional. Mm, and just oh, definitely. Having, having something that you turn to every day, if not for guidance from something divine, then guidance from all the people that we've, we've had on our planet. And I went through just so many, so many books of quotes until I pulled out, I think the total is something like 700 and something. And I wove them into a chain of thought. So quote one connects to quote two, connects to quote three, connects to quote four, and really feeding that through, which is every day there's something to think about that is interesting and ponderable and sort of, yeah, I get that. And that can help me. And that's not just an aphorism, but that's an applicable aphorism. And building that into the book was something that felt, yeah, I want to carry you through day to day, but I also want you to ponder every day too. And just going through books of quotations, it's so re just rewarding reading. It's, it I, is. I love stories, but when you can get one quote that is just, just perfectly sharp and playing with, with hundreds of those was just great fun. Now, um, you talked of going from one to the next to the next, and, and I think that that that's a really important part of your style. It, it informs your your novel. Um, so let's talk about this novel. Uh, it's called One Morning. It takes place over twelve hours uh, on uh, in twenty sixteen in a place called Gowerborough. Gowerborough is a really important character in this. So I'd like you to tell me what made you decide to uh, transform your style from uh, the business graphics of indexed and, and how it'd be interesting in humanist devotional to a purely novelistic style in, in one morning. Well, I'd always just, I write a lot and I wanted a format that I could really explore that sense of, who I was as an artist and I kind of latched on to the idea of what is neglect and how does neglect manifest so in the book neglect comes across as environmental destruction and personal isolation and how a community that is just steeped in that sort of a feeling actually reacts to things you know so um, I take one piece and I just tinker with it until I can pull out the threads uh, so tell us about Gowerborough. Uh, is this like a place you have lived, or was this a place you researched? It is not a real place, but it is sort of a place that I could find on a map. And once I had a spot on a map, I went deep into what that place could be. Uh, I read about there was something called the Great Smog that settled into that corner of Pennsylvania like 100 years ago. And it just suffocated thousands of people. And it was just a spontaneously horrible event. And I kept thinking about that. And my grandparents lived in outside of Pittsburgh. And so I had that sort of setting and knowing just various details about the coal mining and acid rain and bits and pieces of that and the people that would live in a place like that and really building that fictional spot into something that felt real. You know, this book is such a, a wonderful um, examination of the environmental consequences, the human consequences of environmental neglect. And, and I think what you do is, is you show that 
that kind of neglect is is literally submerged in, and most of the time invisible until it presents itself in ways that are often uh, catastrophic. Yeah, everyone, every hour of the book is based on one character's experience of that hour. And I wrote it really thinking that they'd all been marked by the water in some way and how that affects them and really is is a bit of who they are can't had to be inserted and built into everything and so the water as a force of nature and as a force of personality really had to come through with each character and doing that in 12 different ways I felt was half the fun of putting the whole book together I I absolutely love this book and I just wanted to to speak a bit about when you had this book created, having it published by Tartarus is such a, a brilliant move. They are such a wonderful uh, publisher. How did you come into contact with them? So I emailed them thinking, you know what, this would be really cool to work with these guys because I'd read a lot of things by them. And I especially like Arthur Manchin and a lot of the very spooky, very British folk horror, mm-hmm. I guess. And I felt, I felt like my book had that edge of a folk horror to it, which was the horror comes from the place and infects the people. And that, therefore, like, that's the story. So I emailed them, I think, on a Monday, submitting it. And on Wednesday, they were like, yes, let's do it. And I felt like that was such a fast turnaround. And I, it was like, yes, let's go. This sounds beautiful. And they make just absolutely beautiful books. I, I will certainly agree. I have many of them on my shelves. Not, I'm a big fan of Arthur Malkin and uh, uh, Robert Aikman as well, and, and this evokes both of those. One of the things that I really loved about this book was it had a feeling of the supernatural without any actuality of it, and you created that kind of spooky terror using uh, essentially, uh, I guess, you know, science fiction, but though it's not science fiction, it's these things you write about are real. So talk about creating that environment of Gower Borough that is, it's like a giant haunted house. Yes, yes. I think we, every human, I, well, gosh, what was that line I read somewhere that was just, I had it pinned to my wall, which is every body is a haunted house. And you think about that and you're like, you are, we're walking around with like pieces of mercury floating in our skin and our bones are full of plastic. And we are really sort of embodying the places we are. And when you have a place that's, that's sick or wounded, the people are going to be sick and wounded too. And that haunting, I think we all feel it in a form of nostalgia for our hometown or a pit in our stomach when we go into an office that's hostile and taking that sort of haunted feeling and putting it through everything else I think got to again the idea of like what neglect feels like and it does feel like like a deep haunting I the characters in this book are just amazing and in many ways this reminds me of uh Flannery O'Connor and her her creations of the south and that's because the characters are so much a part of their place that we experience everything through their through their eyes. And Helena, the way the book begins is just amazing. She's a crypto taxidermist. What is a crypto taxidermist? You know what? I don't know if I've ever met one, but I've seen enough 
amazing art and art based on taxidermy that building things that don't exist out of things that used to felt kind of like that's what fiction is. And so giving her that first piece and then having her creation sort of show up later in the book, I really wanted to get the, if you drop one bit of ink into water, it turns it a different color. And so each character drops another color of ink into the water until it gets completely dark by the end. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that I think you do really beautifully is to slowly reveal to us you know, the aspects of each character. And we meet Helen, and she's putting together this, uh, well, it said, to, to read from the beginning, she's stitching yak fur to a yeti mask. And, and, and this in and of itself seems, it's fairly unusual. <laughs> but but uh, what I like is that it proves to be not the end of her unusual behavior. Oh, no. No, I went, and... The other thing about how I put the book together was thinking if each sort of paragraph represented about a minute of activity. So there are roughly 60 paragraphs in each chapter, and it so it feels real time. Wow, <laughs> it does. To move through time and reveal themselves is really how you meet people in general, isn't it? So mm. not being able to flash back or flash forward and be in the moment makes people manifest themselves in the most honest way. And creepy, too. Uh, one of the things that I love about this book is that you really nail what uh, Machen himself and, and what uh, Robert Aikman and Stephen King all call terror, which is, uh, according to Stephen King, terror is the finest emotion. <laughs> and, and I think this absolutely nails this. And as I say, you get the feeling of a haunted house, but this is a house that's haunted by neglect of the environment. And the environmentalism in this book is really strong. It's one of the most powerful statements about what happens when we let our environment just go to hell in a handbasket. And I think one of the reasons it is because that's always in the background. There's no Nobody's, not a single character is, is really getting too up in arms around what's happening. Although, as it goes on, we, we realize it's some serious stuff. Oh, yeah. And I think that, that t looking at what is environmentalism anymore, it's, wow, we're all sick in these sort of minor ways that when you put it together, look, we've lost 70% of all the animals on the planet since the 70s. And the little drip, drip, drip of it is, I think, the most terrifying you know, um, what one of the things I really liked about this book is the feel is that you can't because we're so deeply immersed in the perceptions of the characters and the characters themselves, we rapidly come to realize most of them are fairly detached from reality and they're putting, you know, their own imaginations into their recreations of the world. So each one of these people is somewhat writing their own story, horror story to a certain extent. I'd like you to talk about um, creating the variety of women characters. This is a, a book that is super, both timeless because 
it just captures a, a particular point in time, you know, 12 hours. But it's also very timely because we have a book here that where every major character is a woman and where all of them are deeply and, you know, often tragically affected by their by the environment. Yeah, I really wanted it to have women at the center of it because the only person in the book who would have any sort of agency to do anything about this is the geologist. And she is economically not able to follow her own her own studies and putting her there to sort of say, you know what you could have had or you know what you could be or you know what what you wish you could be able to do. And then putting them, they all have a sense of, I have to do something about this. But what they do is small and personal. And making the small and personal sort of ineffective to the larger whole, when they are all detached and there is no community, is really something that I think held the book together. That the community has this sense of isolation itself, and when you are isolated, what you can do is so much smaller. Uh, one of the um, aspects of this book that that I found also really in, enchanting because I, I'm I, I really like monsters. I admit it's kind of juvenile, but there you I go. <laughs> well, I think you create some of the best monsters I've ever seen in terms of. Well, for example, what what uh, the first character, the taxidermist that, that she's putting together, but also who she is. And as we read the book, we see that what has happened in the environment is now reflected in the physiology of the people and the creatures there. We, we hear about a, a three-horned deer. Have you ever seen a three-horned deer? No, but I saw one in taxidermy and I had it, again, I had it pinned to my wall of that is the most fascinating, like a jackalope. Like they don't exist, but it's it's almost a unicorn, but it's the wrong unicorn for the wrong reasons. Uh, and we have the characters with, with missing teeth and, and, and fingers. And what's so interesting is that the characters, you know, they, they really... Uh, and it's a powerful aspect that they accept themselves, and in some cases, they really love themselves. I'm thinking of Paige, who's just a, a real mind-blowing character. She's the the the, the sole daughter. The other uh, children are boys. They're all going out hunting, but Paige has a secret. She's better than any of them, and she's a great character. Oh. Yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot of the characters in the book, I wanted them to all interact in their own ways without really interacting with each other. I mean, there are there are a couple back and forths, and they all have connections, but being their own person in their own space, and Paige doesn't feel shame for what she is. She feels like a feisty pride that she just wants to show off, and I think that that isolated pride is something you see a lot in people who are very, very talented in some way, but they just can't reach out to other people and sort of like get tendrils into other things. You know, too, given that this book 
takes place over 12 hours and offers us 12 different perspectives on on a on what unfolds in a small town in, in those 12 hours uh, there's a very much of a Rashomon feeling here where and this is one of the most fun things about reading this book is when we're reading uh, a character and, and we realize that that character has seen one of our other characters or encountered something from her or, or heard about her. And I think that kind of uh, shifting perspective, the, the Rashomon perspective, allows us to put together the mystery of this book. And, and, and also, it allows you to do, I think, to create a, 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 a denouement that's both like somewhat positive and beautiful and aspirational but just incredibly tearfully tragic thank you yeah i wanted the book i mean to move it in waves of viscous water and to make this connects to that and that touches this and we are all connected and even if we are isolated and feelings can permeate and things change and that change can either be negative or positive and so a lot of times a super emergency is the only thing that's going to force any kind of change because throughout the whole book, everyone's just been dealing with the low level terror of everything is crumbling beneath my feet. And to make that all of a sudden important was really, I think the key to making the book work. The um, coal mines that, that uh, run beneath the city, uh, the, the, the small town of Gowerboro uh, are this kind of almost Lovecraftian source of terror and, and change that's generally not good. So, talk about in doing the research um, into the you know the effects of coal mining and these towns. So I, I know there are towns where there are fires that burn for many many years underground. So, Isn't that pardon. Isn't that terrifying? Like, it's how, really terrifying. Just, just some things. Yeah, I was, I read, I found a really fantastic, I think like 300 page PDF about the geology of Pittsburgh. And you think like, oh, that's going to be really dry, Jess. Like that's not going to be fun to read. It was fascinating. It was, this is how it was built. And this is the time frame, And this is what's going on. And these are the chemicals, and this is why the limestone is doing this, and this is that. And there was a picture of the building of the Squirrel Hill Tunnel, and it was in stark, almost photonegative relief, where everything that should have been light was black. And that image was really sort of the driving piece of, ooh, that is an actual functional piece of just doom. Like, before it's even built, it looks doomed. Uh, I I think that the one of the things I I really liked was that was the way the different characters um you do a really good job at differentiating between each of them they seem very different they they speak differently they think differently and immersing yourself in some of these viewpoints I I mean it must have been somewhat terrifying did you find yourself um kind of oh, in a worrisome state, I mean, it, when you're writing about Agnes or, or uh, I, I think it's, uh, uh, I, I said Eileen, who, uh, I mean, that, oh, yeah. 
they, they yeah. these are strange and sick and distressing people, but they don't realize it. They like themselves. They're okay. Yes. So I have written for J.P. Morgan Chase and Victoria's Secret and Starbucks, and I think a lot of the brands out there that hire copywriters don't realize that the copywriters are dealing with sick and broken characters constantly. And I really wasn't, it wasn't that big of a jump to say, let's look at this honestly. Let's not put this veneer of commerce over the voice of this character. Let's put the character's voice first. And so writing for various companies really gets you, you have to be a ventriloquist and you have to think in dozens of different ways and in dozens of different voices. And so doing that in this book without bullet points of how to get free checking would just <laughs> felt natural. I, I, one of the, the, this book involves, you know, some true crime, you know, uh, crime fiction aspects, um, economic fiction aspects and, uh, just, um, disease fiction aspects. So uh, talk about combining these different perspectives and these different, you know, character points into a narrative that seems remarkably, you know, cohesive. And, and it's also, too, you, when you create a story that's twelve told by 12 different characters, there's a, a real chance that it's going to seem, you know, like either short stories or, you know, somewhat disjointed. This is a really smooth and novelistic feel to this book, which I thought was quite remarkable given uh, the way it was written. Yeah, starting each each character drawing a diagram. I mean, I draw diagrams all the time, but a diagram of how these characters are interrelated. And this character is related to that character is related to that character. Great. How are they related to the environment? How are they related to the past and the future? How are they finding themselves in these places? What is holding them there? What is trying to free them from the place? And when I had that sort of, like when you write the punchline, you can tell the joke the way you want to. So I had the punchlines of what made these characters tick and then putting that into the book in the format that I chose really forced them to reveal themselves and also interact with others at, as time passed. So, so there was, in fact, a how-to-be-interesting style chart for this book? Is it, is that chart exist anywhere that we could uh, see it on the Internet? Oh, no. I, somewhere in my in my notes. And a lot of my, like I said, a lot of my jottings are like, oh, that was an idea. But that, that idea can change as time goes on. And I think there were there were drafts where I was playing with okay, what happens here? And is this person more pivotal than that person? And it it sort of shook into place. Have you seen that video where there's a box of nails and they're just all over the place, but if you just keep shaking the box, because of the physics of the nails, they settle into perfect order? I have not seen that video, but that sounds quite a bit like your book. And that, it, that felt like writing this book was just sort of shaking all the pieces until they settled into where they needed to be. Um, what The um, plotting of the book is, is very, very intricate. Uh, how much of this happened 
with each story and did you write the thing in in sequence i mean how did this tell us a little bit about the creation of this so i started with the place and then Mm -hmm. i drew out each character needing different qualities and the qualities had to sort of combat each other so there would be this person is this person's opposite but not really because they're related and so sort of building it in a diagram of up, down, sideways, not sideways. How does this person react? How, how feminine are they? How active are they? How strong are they? How motivated are they? And putting really sort of every character had to have a deep background. And the backgrounding, I think, on each character mm-hmm. then let me write out the story. Did you write out the backgrounds before you wrote the stories? Yeah, I had, I think, a notebook full of full of this person is like that and this person's like that. And I really think if anybody found it, they'd be like, you are mean. This is a burn book. Like you are just making fun of all these people. But really to get to know a character, I had to sort of tinker with them and walk around with them in my head for a while. That is one of the things I would never say about this book. You you seem to have an incredible amount of compassion for these characters, no matter how twisted and sick and, and, and you know, de- destroyed they are by the environment. That yeah. you seem to you like them all. I mean, as readers, we like all of these characters, even the ones who are really, really <laughs> bent. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, you have to have you have to have a compassion for the world you've built. If, like in how to be interesting, you can't you can't talk to people and say you are completely boring and horrible and no one likes you and here's why. No, like the whole point of getting a story out is to say these people are just like you and I in our own strange ways. And if we had been in this environment, we would have that too. So the intersection of humanity and storytelling had to come together because you can't if you're cruel to a character that's just that's an easy way out of anything that's that's just a mean a mean plot but if everyone has something to root for then you want to keep reading about them and the rooting for some of the characters i mean the 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 woman there's a woman who's a, a financial genius uh, who who but she lives in the, in the most terrifying but really understandably realistic sequences. And I think that the tension in the, that each of these characters has is there are kind of like, you know, different aspects of polar opposites united in each character and the where the different parts rub up against one another. Sometimes that works out and sometimes it does not work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that character specifically has... I wanted someone to come back to that town as I have left and come back for reasons. And the reasons are the home, the place changed me in the first place. So I was never going to fit in anywhere else. And that, that gravitational pull of the place forced her to do what she does, which is just really weird public relations. You know, uh, I think that, for me too, the 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 realism of the book uh, was really nice to to read because it seems like you know we're reading about things that you know all could and probably are happening somewhere, but the feel of it w- was very much like reading Robert Aikman, Arthur Machen, that the world is 
not only stranger than we do know, it's stranger than we can know. And, and yeah. you dis- help us discover those parts where we can't, that we don't know. Yeah, I think as, so keeping it in the present tense mm. was important for that for me, because you're not going to, unless you're reading sort of a textbook, you're not going to get the full breadth of the history of a place unless you examine the artifacts that it's showing you. So all of the artifacts in the book and all of the pieces and parts of the characters had to be revealed naturally. They couldn't be, I couldn't have a, the, the narrator show up sideways and be like, by the way. So everything, everything had to flow out of the characters themselves. That, that is, is a very difficult trick to pull off. And I think you pull it off with just uh, amazing skill uh, was, did this thing, was this easy to write or did it write itself or did it like require some of the same kind of terrifying efforts that we see our characters have to make to get either escape from their situation or improve it or just participate it in their own very unusual manner? I think once I decided to do it, it was something that I just kept tinkering with over the course of about a year and really just, I couldn't, I couldn't put it away for too long and I had to keep playing with it. And I kept, I kept tinkering really to sort of, okay, if this minute, this person feels this way, how does that minute feel to the next person? And how does, how does time echo and how does time work and how do, gosh, I was just reading a short story about the idea of infinity and eternity and what is the difference. And that, that sort of, if you can capture everything in one moment, you're looking at infinity and eternity in one spot. Which is kind of crazy thinking, but like if you can capture everything at one place and it's all representational, it gets somewhere. Uh, that sounds very Italo Calvino esque. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I, 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 kind of see that in in what you've written i have to say that to my mind this is absolutely 100 percent tailor-made to be turned into you know a a, a high-end miniseries that as we've seen you know a novel for tv because i mean you've got 12 episodes 12 you know absolute capstone star performances uh, have you uh, sent this out or rewritten it as a screenplay, or do you think it could be done as a screenplay? I have not done that, and that would be absolutely amazing. We did get a my agent has a a lead on someone who wants to investigate the rights, but other than that first sort of email, we don't have any anything going. But yeah, putting this putting that idea out in the universe is definitely something that that would be fun. Uh, what are you working on now? Are you? I, I imagine that you're continuing to do index-style cartooning. Um, talk about you know the the tension in your life between you know the the bread and butter you know money making uh, indexing and and the 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 uh, novel novel writing. Yeah, so I still do all the indexing, and I have started a podcast of drabbles which are short stories that are exactly 100 words and i stopped doing that when i got pneumonia and lost my voice for a couple months spring, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to do right when you start a podcast so i'm getting back into that so i'll have sort of a daily fiction object out in the world 
And I'm also working on my next book is called How to Be Fearless. And that will be re released next, I think, spring or summer. Um, uh, a book that will be well, well, much needed, and, and I imagine well received. Um, have you, are you working on another novel yet, or is something incubating in in the back of your brain? I mean, when you're doing indexed, does that give you space to, you know, interstices within which you can do something completely different? Yes, and the the next sort of novel that I'm working on is the idea of. Are you guilty when you decide to do something, or are you guilty once it happens? Ooh, now, <laughs> this sounds like something uh, uh, exploring what to me is one of the most finest and most interesting emotions, the emotion of regret. Yes. Do you, if you do something, do you, is it worth doing it, or is the regret going to negate any of the good aspects that came from that? And I think that... Uh, there's a there's an element of that in in this book, and I, it sounds like that would be more fun fun for you to explore. Yeah, I think the sort of how people rationalize who they are and what they do is that can drive so many plots. Like, how long does it take a person to decompose in a compost bin, and is that time of decomposition happening? Like, there are so many just like horrible details that. <laughs> If I can find a way to make them beautiful and interesting, that that's that's satisfying work to me. Now, are are you going to? Will this be one of the things I really liked about um, one morning was, as I explained, that the the feel of the supernatural, um, without the necessity of having to go back to ghosts or whatever kind of you know the all the cliches that play out in teen in teen angst movies. Um, Will you be exploring something that is like science fictional or a supernatural feel, or are you going to go for a more uh, crime fiction feel? <laughs> Dead body sounds very crime fiction, but also Stephen King-esque. Right. I, I really have to, to tinker with what is happening and why. And once I get, once I get the kernel, I can sort of un see the bits, the bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of my writing sort of this is connected to that why and so getting enough pieces together to sort of to tinker and and play with things is also something really fascinating another idea that I've been playing with is when you meet someone on the internet who has your name mm. so what is identity and there are two people with the same name doing vastly different things but people confuse them all the time and how easily can you be confused with someone else and why? And what are the opportunities to exploit that loophole? Uh, a, a, a dilemma I found myself in when I ran a search for your name under in Skype and came back with three answers. I, I mean, I knew your address from, from your email, but nonetheless, I thought, wow, there's three of her out there. There are several of us. There's, there are, gosh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And sometimes we get emails for each other or I'll get on a list for one of the other Jessica's and you just realize that if you can confuse people as disparate as we are just with an email, how, how similar are all people anyway? And it's, it's, I think a lot about a lot of weird things and I jot a lot of things down. So hopefully all of this turns into something good. Um, I'm just curious you you mentioned uh, reading Tartarus Press books. 
Uh, what other sorts of fiction in that realm do you read, or or who might you recommend um, to our listeners? Oh, so I am out at my cabin, which is a very spooky place anyway, up in the Pacific Northwest, and it's very foggy. So I brought some spooky books with me, and I brought Roald Dahl's short stories, which is a tease and a half because he didn't write any of them. He just picked out his favorite ghost stories. And so they're all very set in long ago London, and they have that sort of let's explore what would happen if feel to them. And there are a lot of missing kids and ghosts and tubes that people get sucked into. And it's a really good, short little book. And I don't know if you're a Roald Dahl fan or not, but he is just one of the darkest, the darkest people. And so for him to pick out his favorite ghost stories, I'm quite keen on that book. Yeah, Roald Dahl is wonderful because he combines both a kind of, he has a rather lighthearted approach to, to darkness, which works well to make, to, to render the lightheartedness, give it some gravity and give the darkness uh, a reason to, uh, you know, uh, for us to endure it. <laughs> yeah, he tells tragedies as jokes and it's, it's really, it's like, oh, hey, that was, that got me, and I'm going to be thinking about that for a few days now. Well, that's uh, in these days. I think tragedies are jokes. <laughs> I think uh, more and more of us are, are down for that perspective. <laughs> um, I've been speaking with Jessica Hay. Her new novel is One Morning. She's the author and the creator of the Indexed Blog and how the author of How to Be Interesting. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.